good to see you all. We've been away the uh, last couple of weeks on holidays, so uh, it's great to be back at church, and I'm excited because we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, I often joke, my favourite book of the Bible is whichever one I'm reading at the moment or whichever one I'm preaching on, uh, but really, when you think about it, you should expect that because uh, the Bible is not a dead book. The Bible is living and active. This is the Word of God, and uh, whatever part of the Bible we're looking at is God talking to us right now. So our favourite book should be whichever one we're studying at the moment. But having said that, I think all Christians should have a soft spot for the book of Acts uh, because Acts is, for the Christian, our family history, if you like. Uh, The book of Acts is where it all began for us. It's our Ancestry.com search results as Christians. Uh, As I've gotten older, I've become more caring about my family history. Uh, on my long service leave a little while ago, we, uh, we got to go to England and I would have dreaded this when I was younger, going and knocking on the door of distant relatives in the north of England. My kids dreaded it, but they turned out to be semi-normal, so it was all right and, uh, uh, and we had a lovely time with them. But it's funny how you, as you get older, you become nostalgic. You want to find out about your family. I think that's why things like Ancestry.com are so popular. But the book of Acts is that for us as Christians. We are the result of what happens here in this book. Uh, So over the next term, we're looking at the first half of the book of Acts, then we'll come back uh, and deal with the second half in the second half of the year or maybe early next year. But I hope you get excited about this. I hope you read along. I hope you ask questions about the, the bits we don't get to and all that sort of thing. But now let's get to it. Open your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. And as we start, we need a bit of a quick intro. Basically, what is the book of Acts. Well, the first thing you need to see is Acts is the second book in a series. So Acts was written by Luke, who obviously wrote Luke's gospel. So you've got Luke's gospel is volume one, and then his volume two is the book of Acts. But they weren't separate books. It's not like 1 Peter and 2 Peter or Romans and Galatians by Paul. It's more like volume one than volume two of the same story, like Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back, if you grew up at the same time as me. So right back, the start of Luke's gospel, Luke told us why he was writing Luke and Acts. He said, what I'm doing is I'm gathering together all the eyewitness accounts about Jesus. I'm writing history. That's what he says from the start. This is a biography. I want you to know about Jesus and I'm doing that so, look at Luke chapter 1 verse 4, it'll come up on the screen, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. That's why this is written. This is all written so that we might know the truth about Jesus, if you like, that we might know the certainty about the gospel that's been shared with us, the certainty of what Jesus came and did and said. Now, in volume one, he got up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's where Luke ends the story there. It finishes, Luke's gospel finishes with Jesus ascending into heaven. Uh, And so you might think, well, isn't that the end of the story about Jesus? Jesus is gone at the end of Luke's gospel. Acts now is sort of the story after Jesus. But this is really, really important to see. We've got to grasp this to get the book of Acts. Luke wants us to see that Jesus's story doesn't end with his ascension into heaven. His ministry continues after that. So come to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, that's Luke's gospel, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
Now, what do you see there? Look with me. You see, first of all, it's Jesus' ascension that is the hinge between these two books. That's the, the, the end of one story, the beginning of another. The first book was about what, and this is important, what Jesus began, what he began to do and teach until he ascended to heaven. That's important because it seems to be saying now in book two, now I'm going to show you what Jesus kept doing after he ascends to heaven. That is, Acts is about what Jesus does, it's just that now he does it through his Holy Spirit. And in particular, he does it through his Holy Spirit in the lives of these apostles. And so it's these two chapters, what they are, it's really important to see this, it's not that Luke is about Jesus and Acts is about the apostles. The book of Acts is not just about Peter and Paul and what they do, it's continuing the story of Jesus and his mission, just now he's working through his apostles and the Holy Spirit. But it's those two characters who are the focus of the first chapter, the apostles and the Holy Spirit, and then the focus of the whole book. So come with me and look at verses 1 to 5 as we look at the apostles and the Spirit. So it's through the apostles, the 12 men Jesus had been raising up, that Jesus was going to continue his work. And so for 40 days after his resurrection, and between, sorry, between his resurrection, between leaving for heaven, his ascension, Jesus gives them basically a masterclass in the Bible. Uh, I would have loved to have been there for that 40 days. I just think, you know, imagine being there for that moment as Jesus opened up all the scriptures so that they could understand the kingdom of God. Look at verse 3. It says, After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. See, what he did was he opened up the scriptures, he opened up the Old Testament as we know it, he explained how it was all about him, how it pointed forward to him and he was the coming king, the Messiah, he was bringing the kingdom of God. He basically explained to them the things that they then share with us in the rest of the New Testament. But even with that masterclass, there was something more they needed. They weren't ready yet to get underway, they're still waiting for Jesus' greatest gift to them, which is his Holy Spirit. Look from verse 4. It says, While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptised with water, but you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, Jesus had told them before, I will not leave you alone. When I go, you will not be left alone. I will send you my Spirit. So Jesus is saying, it's nearly time. Don't do anything yet. Wait for now, just a few more days, and then the Holy Spirit will come. But in that time, Jesus had one more thing to teach them. He had to give them their, what we call, great commission. And what is actually our great commission as well. So come with me to verses 6 to 11. If you look at verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus a question. So it says, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? That seems like a really strange question to us. That is not a question any of us would have asked Jesus. That's because we are not Old Testament Jews and we're not waiting for the Messiah to come and make Israel great again. Uh, and so they're thinking, is Jesus finally saying, finally going to set up a throne in Jerusalem? Is Jesus finally going to kill all our enemies? Is Jesus going to wipe out the Romans? Is Jesus going to make Israel the, the centre of the world again? Is that, what, is that what's going to happen with the coming of the Spirit in a few days' time? But in asking that question, 
The disciples are actually showing just how little they've grasped of what Jesus has taught them for the last three years and then the last 40 days. I had to laugh at this, John Calvin, the great reformer, he wrote about this verse and he said, there are as many errors in their question as there are words in their question. Isn't that a cut down? There's many errors in the question as there are words. So what have they got wrong? What hadn't they understood? I want to draw out just a couple of things, not all of them. Firstly, they've made an error of timing. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. This is a constant theme in the New Testament. God's timing is God's timing. Whenever the Bible talks about Jesus' return, whenever it talks about Jesus coming to establish his kingdom once and for all, it says, you cannot know when. Not even Jesus knows, only the Father knows. It could be tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be in a thousand years, you don't know. If someone tells you Jesus is returning at this time, that is the clearest sign that they are a false teacher that you can get. Only God knows when Jesus will return and bring in his kingdom once and for all. But secondly, and more importantly... They hadn't understood the nature of Jesus' kingdom and the role they had to play in it. Look at verse 8, which I think is the key verse for understanding the whole rest of the book of Acts. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The problem was these disciples still had far too small a picture of what Jesus was doing. Jesus' kingdom was not a national kingdom. Jesus' kingdom was not a political kingdom. It was not just for Israel, it was for the whole world. And it was going to spread to the ends of the earth. It was for people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And Jesus' kingdom was not going to spread by political work. And it wasn't going to spread by conquest. It's not like a a normal this world kingdom, which grows on the back of armies and wars and deals and treaties. Jesus's kingdom spreads by people telling other people about the king. That's how it spreads. And by the spirit helping people come to faith in the king. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is going to come, but only after the news of the king has gone to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is saying to them here, this is your job. With the help of the Holy Spirit, you are the witnesses. You've seen everything I did. You've seen everything I said. You've heard it all. Now you have to go to Jerusalem. Then you have to go to Judea and Samaria and then to every place on earth to tell people about Jesus. Now, we are not witnesses in the same sense. We are not apostles. We weren't there to hear the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't see Jesus die. We didn't see him rise again. But that mission of the apostles continues to be our mission and it will be the mission of the church until Jesus returns. Every generation of the church doesn't need to work out a new mission. Every church should know its mission. Our mission is this one that Jesus gave us. Do you know the only reason we are given in the Bible for why Jesus has not returned and established his kingdom, the only reason is he wants more people to hear about him. That is the only reason Jesus has not returned. He wants more people to come to know him, more people to trust in him, more people to find the salvation we have found. Why are we still here? Why hasn't Jesus returned? It's so that we might continue to take the gospel 
to the ends of the earth. And so, having given them and us that task, that mission, Jesus was gone. He ascends to the heavens where he now sits at his Father's right hand. And I love the wonderful comical picture you get in verse 10. Just look with me. The apostles are standing there with their mouths open, staring up at the heavens as Jesus ascends to heaven. And then two angels come to them and look at verse 11. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. I love this moment. It's like they're saying to them, what are you doing standing there with your mouths open? What are you doing looking up there? You've got a job down here. Jesus has given you a job here on earth. Go and do it before he comes back. It's actually just a wonderful reminder that the key to the Christian life is understanding the times in which we live. See, the, the key to the Christian life is understanding the era of history that we are in the middle of. We live in the in-between time. There are two great events that we live between that define everything. Firstly, the past, what Jesus has done in his death and his resurrection. But then he is going to return to bring in his kingdom once and for all. When you understand that, that we are living between those two key points of history, you understand that to be a Christian is to be a missionary. To be a Christian is, is to be a part of this mission. The world, this world is not our home. We're, we're looking forward to Christ's return. And while we are here, we exist to see his message, the message of the kingdom, go to the ends of the earth. See, the book of Acts actually demands that we just live and breathe the gospel in everything. We live in the era of mission. Jesus has not delayed his return so that we can own our own house. Jesus has not delayed his return so we can go on all those trips we've got planned. He hasn't delayed our returns so that we can... Whatever. He has delayed his return so that more people might hear about him, repent and be saved. We live in the time of mission. Now, some people will go as missionaries... Some people like the Blaus will go to Argentina, like the, the newbies to, to the Philippines. Other of us, others of us will witness quietly to our families and in our workplaces. We will all support taking the gospel to the nations. But we'll all be involved in that mission because that is what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a part of his mission for our world. So as we start this year... As we start these studies in the book of Acts, let's commit ourselves or recommit ourselves for most of us to having the mission of Christ at the forefront of our minds. In many ways, that's the main point of this first chapter of Acts. Have that ringing in your ears. Keep that ringing in your ears as we look at this book together this term. But our chapter has two other little incidents we want to look at and I think you'll find they're really encouraging. So come with me. The first is about the importance of prayer. It's a wonderful, just little aside, the disciples did what Jesus asked, they go back to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit, but they don't just sit there twiddling their thumbs. I often think when someone tells me to wait, that means do nothing. But actually, waiting is a good time to do things. So I always take a book whenever I go anywhere, because I always want to read when I'm waiting. But look at verse 14, what do they do? All these were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I think this is a wonderful little picture of the early church. At this point, there were only 120 Christians. Isn't that amazing? 
This point, 120 followers of Jesus with the job of taking the gospel to the world. There, there, are, there were less there than at some of our individual congregations at Snack on a Sunday. But as they waited, what did they devote themselves to? Prayer. You see this modelled all through the book of Acts. We are a people with a mission and that drives us to be a people of constant prayer because in the end our mission is God's work and so the best thing we can do is pray. Notice also this isn't a command. Sometimes people read the book of Acts and they think church has to be like the first church was. Let me tell you, they got a lot of things wrong too and we're going to see that in the coming weeks. It's just describing what they did but what it does is it shows you that the church at its best is united in prayer. The church at its best is people together devoted to prayer. Do you know, the times I love the most in our church life, when I look back and think of great times in our church life, It's times where for some reason we've been especially devoted to prayer, especially devoted to prayer, especially prayer for mission. And it's a great thing again for us to commit to as we start this year, as our gospel team start again for this year. Keep this in mind. Let's be committed to prayer together. There is something wonderful about a church united in prayer. My favourite thing at morning tea is when I see two people with their heads bowed. I hope they're not looking at their phones. I hope they're praying. Prayer is the most wonderful thing. Well, turn back to our passage. There's one little part of the chapter, last part. I've called it choosing a new 12th man for the cricket fans. So this is from verse 15. The fact is there was an empty chair in the room. Jesus had appointed 12 apostles, but Judas now was missing. Peter stands up to address that elephant in the room or not in the room, so to speak, and he reminds everyone of what Judas did. He reminds everyone of what then happened to Judas. It's very graphic here. Uh, Judas betrayed Jesus and he was judged because of it but what Peter especially wants people to understand is that what happened with Judas was all part of God's plan. See, See they could have thought gosh what happened? Judas turned on us, Judas turned on Jesus, Jesus went to his death, that can't be right but Peter wants them to understand no 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 this was all part of God's plan, Jesus had to die. What Judas did was part of God's sovereign plan for everything to bring about the salvation of the world, but that doesn't absolve Judas of responsibility. It doesn't make him a puppet. He was, he was guilty of a horrible crime, as his horrible fate shows. But what happened to him was all part of God's plan. That's why Peter stresses the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Do you see that? Look from verse 16. It says, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David spoke in advance about Judas. And so down at verse 20, Peter actually shows he's learnt something from what Jesus has been teaching them. He, he quotes these Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, to show how all of God's Word in the Old Testament was pointing forward to this. But he also points out that God's Word said, Judas needs to be replaced. But how do you replace one of the 12 apostles? Jesus had chosen that 12, you know, what what are they going to do? How do you just conscript in a new person? Well, as they thought about that replacement, it's important to see, they thought not just anyone could take this role. They didn't go out and say, who's the most impressive man amongst our 120 people? Let's get him. You see, the fact that they cast lots, in our term, they, they rolled dice or tossed a coin. The fact they did that and it fell on Matthias makes some people think they just sort of let it happen. 
you know, it, it's sort of like Matthias was walking past, the lot fell on him and it's like, Matt, didn't you realise it? You're an apostle now. Uh, there are important qualifications. Look at verse 21. It says, therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. That last line is the key. So you have to remember, what is the role of the apostles? Their job was be a, to be a witness to others of everything Jesus had said and done, especially of his resurrection. And so as they looked for people with those qualifications, they needed someone who'd been right there from the beginning, hearing everything Jesus said and did, right through to the end, who had seen Jesus risen from the dead. To be an apostle, yet you needed to have seen the lot. And so that left only two possible candidates. There was either Joseph, also called Barsabas or Justice, or Matthias. And because they were both suitable, what did they do? They prayed and then they tossed a coin. And it fell to Matthias and he was appointed. Now, this is not saying that is how we appoint leaders in the church. So we're not going to have a big set of dice at the AGM in March and then roll them and say, you're it, whether you like it or not. Sorry, Petros, you're on the parish council. But, you know, that's, Jana says, no, thank you. But, but it, it, it actually here, we actually get a great model for appointing leaders in the church. When we appoint people to leadership in the church, where do we look first? We look to the qualifications of Scripture. They have to meet the qualifications of the Scriptures. What qualifications has God set out for this leadership? Who fulfills the criteria that God's word requires? We should also then pray like they do for wisdom in appointing leaders. And then if there is one clearly appropriate person, appoint them. But if there's more than one, we're equally qualified. And remember, most of the Bible's qualifications for leadership are about character, godliness, rather than giftedness. But if there's more than one person, God doesn't say how you should choose. You can roll dice. You can have a vote. You can do whatever you like as long as the person is appropriate. But more important than that, what this passage reminds us of is the role of the apostles. What are the apostles? They are the faithful witnesses of all that Jesus said and did, and most importantly, the faithful witnesses of his resurrection. And that's why as these 12 were killed, they were not replaced. You'll see that in the book of Acts. As they start to go one by one, basically, they were not replaced. We'll come to the Apostle Paul in a few weeks, he's a separate category, but the role of the Apostle is not a transferable role in the church. There are not Apostles in the modern church in that sense. That's why as they neared their death, what did the Apostles do? As they started getting killed one by one, what did the Apostles do? They passed on the message to other trustworthy people because it's the message that's important. It's what they witnessed that's important and then they wrote it down for us in the Scriptures, what we have as the New Testament. See, no modern minister or pastor is an apostle. I do not speak for Jesus like Peter did. I don't speak for, 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 for Jesus like John did. My job is to point you to the apostles' teaching. That's my job. That's the authority. The New Testament is where we listen to the teaching of the apostles. See, my authority as your minister is only ever an authority to teach the Scriptures, only ever an authority that is under the Word of God. The true authority 
is the apostolic gospel. Well, the stage is set for the book of Acts. I hope you're looking forward to getting into it over the next few weeks. We're going to meet the Holy Spirit next week. But what we need to have in our minds is two things. First of all, that reminder of our mission. Why are we here? Why has Jesus not returned? This time we live in exists so that the gospel can be preached. That's our mission. That must be what drives us. And then secondly, what is our authority? It's the message of the apostles that we have recorded for us in the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for this term ahead as we look at the book of Acts. Help us to learn so much from it. Help us to have soft hearts ready to be challenged, ready to be encouraged. But Father, we pray that we would always have at the very centre that mission that Jesus gave our apostles, the mission to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.